Welcome to the Chronic Sex Podcast. Chronic Sex talks about how self-love, relationships, sex, and sexuality are all affected by chronic illness and disability. That's not all, though. We'll also touch on intersectionality, social justice, empathy, current events, and much, much more. Given the range of subject matter, this podcast is not suitable for those under the age of 18, and unless you have headphones, you probably shouldn't be listening to us at work. My name's Kirsten Schultz, and I'm your host. Hey everyone, welcome to the show. Um, I'm hoping that this episode will be a little bit shorter than the last one and include a lot less crying, um, but there's no guarantee. Before I kind of dive into today's topic, I wanted to give some updates about some upcoming events that I will be at. Um, the first is the Poly Dallas Conference. It's a polyamorous conference um, that talks about a variety of different like relationships and um, coming out as polyamorous and a whole bunch of things. And that's at the... Um, there's an embassy suites by the DFW airport in Dallas, and um, that's where that will be. Our talk is <laughs> at 3 p.m. on Friday the 13th, <laughs> um, and it's one of the only panels that doesn't have any competing um like sessions going on at the same time so I'm a little nervous about how that's gonna go and also we only have an hour to talk about how illness and polyamory like work together so again a little nervous (laughs) it'll be fine though but but even before that, um, on June 17th, I'll be up in Montreal. Um, there's an organization called Exexy. It's <laughs> it probably sounds cooler in French, but it's A C S E X E plus, and they are holding their first summit around sexuality, accessibility, and disabilities. Um, and I will be talking that day from 1 to 2 30 i think montreal's eastern it may be one further than that i don't even know i need to look at this shit but (laughs) um i'll be doing the hurt so good presentation there in montreal it's um gonna be really cool i'm very excited about it um and just really excited to be in Montreal, honestly, because um, I've always wanted to go, <laughs> and I love Canada, so it'll be good. It'll be a good thing. So those are the, the two big event updates coming up in June and July. Um, there will be more, and I will share them as they get confirmed, and I have links and stuff. So I'll put links to the registrations for both of those in the show notes for y'all. I have a kind of upsetting update. Um, I've been working a part-time job for the last little while that I got laid off of, 
And then one of my freelancing gigs is kind of on hold for the minute, which means my income went down to my Patreon account, uh, which is, I think right now, $25 a month. (laughs) So um, if you would like to donate on Patreon, you can find the show at patreon.com slash chronic sex. And that would be cool. I like to pay my bills when I can. It's a good thing. The guinea pigs like to eat. Uh, <laughs> Jacques looking at me like, what? Food? I like food. Um, so yeah, just a little shameless slash half-shamed plug. Um, today I wanted to talk a little bit about Freddie Mercury because there's been information coming out about the upcoming biopic with Rami Malek in it and how it erases Freddie's queer identity and the AIDS crisis. Um, And I just wanted to talk a little bit about that because I'm kind of pissed. And by kind, I mean super. It's been uh, 26 and a half years since Freddie passed away. Um, He died on November 24th, and he died from complications from AIDS. His AIDS hadn't been disclosed until very shortly before he passed away, and so he wasn't able to be out about his sexuality or his illness status, quite frankly, because he was so sick. And... um his story is something that is really impactful for a lot of people that have been touched by HIV AIDS or just, um, you know, are queer, enjoy queer culture and, and all of that. Um, and I'm really, (laughs) really upset. So, um, first of all, I just want to, say that Freddie was attracted to people of any gender setup. Um, from what it sounds like, I mean, the, the stereotypical notion of being attracted to men and women probably, I don't know. I don't know. Um, it's really hard to kind of go back and assign a sexuality to somebody when, one, they didn't get a chance to share their sexuality with someone with today's terms, and two, um, they didn't get to experience a lot of the freedom that's going on right now with gender and orientation. Most places call him bisexual. Again, I'm not sure. I don't feel like he came out that way ever, and so what I'm going to refer to him as is queer, and that's probably a little bit biased just because I'm pansexual, used to identify as bisexual before I realized it doesn't really matter someone's gender when I'm attracted to them, which let's let's take a step back and uh, define both of those terms uh, because there's a lot of misconception about both of them and they're often used to pit people against each other, which is very unfortunate and upsetting. So bisexual is that you are attracted to two or more genders, and 
that could mean that you are attracted to men and mask of center non-binary people and mask of center gender non-conforming people. That could be that you're attracted to women and femme of center people. It could be that you're attracted to everybody and you like that term because you don't have to explain what it means but it's two or more it is not just two it is not something that erases um people who are nbs or trans or gender non-conforming pansexual means that you're attracted to somebody regardless of their gender so gender doesn't even play a role in how you're attracted to somebody So that's the difference, is that for bisexual people, from a a technical aspect, they are attracted to people that fit within certain gender categories, whereas pansexuals don't even take gender into account. So the difference is not that one is transmisic or one is bimisic or any of that. Is just, do you take gender into consideration? Yes, then you're probably bi. Do you take gender into consideration? No, then you're probably pan. Like with any sexual orientation category, you get to choose, um, you know, what you want to use, and it's completely up to you. Um, I use queer a lot because, one, it's... It does get a little tiresome to explain to everybody about what pansexual is all the time, um, especially people who have the idea that it's inherently bimisic, which it's not, um, and people that don't understand what that means and all those stereotypical questions you get asked, like, does that mean you're attracted to pans and cookery? Like, no, it does not mean I'm attracted to pans and cookery. Um And two, um, you know, part of what we're going to talk about today, right, is queer culture. And I felt very immersed in that for a long time and in learning the history of, of queer people and queer movements and having been very, you know, mentally involved, (laughs) at least, in working to to end some of the misconceptions around HIV AIDS and working to end misconceptions around queer people. Like, it's something that's very close to my heart. But three, there's also a very political aspect around being queer. When I think about queer, I think about early to mid-90s, fighting for um, the ability to exist without being harmed, which really hasn't changed, Uh, fighting for people to recognize HIV-AIDS as the illness that it is and not a, quote, gay cancer, unquote, Um, which those misconceptions still exist a lot, especially in the South, where one, the sex education sucks ass. And then two, they are so, like, queer mystic that they don't even want to think about it. And the three, the the HIV-AIDS rates are 
skyrocketing because of the last two. <laughs> so it's really bad. Um, but, you know, it's it's about ACT UP. It's about fighting to stay alive. It's about being politically activated and protests and being arrested for protesting. And those are things that are really close to my heart. Um, it's there's there's something so political about being queer, about reclaiming that word, which I recognize not everyone feels comfortable with. Um, and that's okay. I think that people in millennial in the millennial generation and down, we don't necessarily have the same experience with queer being used as a slur as a lot of people in older generations do, and we don't necessarily have the same memories of violence. Um, I say necessarily because that's obviously not true for all of us. And I think, too, something that's important to recognize is the power in being able to reclaim a word and in taking the harm out of that word. Like, it's still going to hurt if some redneck douchebag calls me queer. Um, it's still going to hurt, but it's different than being like, oh, no, like, you call me a queer, this is awful. Um Versus being like, yeah, you're right, I am a fucking queer. What do you want to do about it? Um, which probably would get me killed. I'm not going to lie. But it's, you know, there's something powerful in taking away the harm intended by some of those words. Um, at least some of that harm. So yeah, I'm going to be using queer to describe Freddie Mercury because I don't necessarily think that it's okay to label him bisexual when it's kind of a backwards, you know, uh, not backwards as in like wrong, but it's uh, retroactive. That's what I meant. Like a retroactive um, kind of labeling and we don't necessarily have his words on that. I, I get a little uncomfortable when people go back to people in history and like, oh, that person was pan, oh, that person was bi, this person was a lesbian. And it's like, I know that it's important from a personal standpoint to feel like we have those heroes, to feel like we have those people in our history. But it's also important not to ascribe labels to them that they didn't get to pick. Um, so I think using queer, like we use LGBTQ, using those synonymously is better. We're saying they're not specifically straight. <laughs> they're not specifically heterosexual, but not necessarily going further into that. And and that's kind of my stance on labels. Anyway, <laughs> so Freddie Mercury is a very, very interesting person. Um, I didn't know about his sexuality growing up, even in high school, I didn't know. And um, it's really interesting to me that a lot of people still don't realize. Um, I, I will say this, in people that use the term bisexual to describe Freddie, 
there's an inherent bisexual erasure by a lot of people who are like, oh yeah, Freddie Mercury was incredibly gay. I'm sorry. He wasn't. <laughs> and that's, again, that's part of why I'm using the label queer, but but for people who believe he was bisexual, that's a major instance of bi-erasure. Um, erasing someone's identity to make them fit more in line with what you want to see. It harms other people. So when we say, oh, like, he was gay, not bi, like, that's harmful to people who fall in the bi category. Because you're telling them that, you know their hero shouldn't be their hero. It's it's by erasure. And that is different from what I'm doing, which is, you know, using the umbrella term queer to describe Freddy um, out of respect for him and not being able to, for him not being able to, to speak up about his own sexuality. Um, yeah, that's, it's different. I can still see where it could be harmful to people, but but it's a different level of things. Yeah. So Freddie Mercury um, was born in Zanzibar, which is pretty cool. Um, He was born in 1946. He grew up in Zanzibar and in India before they moved to England. And Queen started in 1970. In... 1991 is when Freddie died. He was 45, and he had bronchopneumonia as a complication of his AIDS. The next year, he got awarded a, a bunch of awards. There were tribute concerts, all sorts of things to recognize, you know, his like contributions to the the rock and roll world and to the music world um and i I think it's important that we step back and think about the fact that 1991 um was a very pivotal time in queer culture um and we had things like the aids quilt starting and people wanting to use more awareness, um, or wanting to bring more awareness to HIV AIDS. And when I say AIDS quilt just starting, it was in its sixth year. Um, but it was really starting to hit on a national level. Um, it was getting more coverage. People were recognizing it more. And on, on a slight tangent, um, a couple years ago, I was in a space as a part of a panel in LA, and they had a part of the AIDS quilt hanging up. And when I walked in, I wanted to cry immediately because of how much kind of weight that quilt carries, right? Like, People refusing to say the word HIV or AIDS. People refusing to recognize that this wasn't just gay cancer. People not moving on things that they should have moved on, especially um, in the political world, especially in the medical world. And it's really, um, it's really, really emotional to share the same space as the quilt. Um, 
just just for those reasons it's i don't know it it was really it was really good um i really needed that uh, kind of emotional hit if that makes sense not in a bad way um but but in 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 the recognition that um this this thing this kind of monolith that I've been mentally attracted to for so long was really there, um, was really real. Because it's one thing to see something on TV, and it's another thing to be like, oh my god, I'm like two feet away from a piece of the AIDS quilt. Um, so that was really important to me. And I want to talk about Freddie, but I also want to set this scene about HIV AIDS at the time. Um, because we had presidents who didn't want to say HIV AIDS, who didn't want to recognize what was going on. Um, and this actually kind of ties into a conference I was at in November. So I got to go to the American College of Rheumatology Conference. Uh, it was in San Diego, which on its own was lovely to be there because holy shit, I needed the beach. Um, but the keynote speaker for the opening night was Dr. Anthony Fauci, who is the director of the um, National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. It's a role he's been in since 1984. And he's actually, he holds the record for testifying before Congress more times than anyone else, which is amazing. He started off doing rheumatology-related work, so studying rheumatic diseases like rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, etc., and shifted to focusing on infectious diseases because of HIV-AIDS when the first cases came out and they didn't know exactly what it was. He had the foresight that this was going to be something very big, very impactful, and it's really cool that he was able to see that. Um, he talked about, you know, the the changes that have happened in infectious diseases since the early 80s and shared conversations he's had with past and current presidents. Um, and I, I think the most surprising story that he shared, um, so when Reagan was in the White House, he refused to really talk about HIV-AIDS. Um, and so when George Bush was vice president, he and Fauci had conversations around HIV-AIDS about how, how concerning it was, how it clearly wasn't, like, gay cancer, like, all of these things that I think when we think about George H.W. Bush, it's like, that's not what we think about. <laughs> um, and and so it's really nice to kind of see that other side. And Bush actually toured the, the NIAID's facilities while he was president um, and sat in on a support group for HIV AIDS patients that Fauci helped facilitate. And the photos that he shared of both Presidents Bush um, 
in this room with all these HIV AIDS patients and talking to them and um, even the late Barbara Bush, you know, working to help babies who had been um, transmitted HIV through their birth, like all these things were just really emotional. That does not outdo the harm <laughs> that these three people did or or their white privilege or their upper class privilege or any of that. But the, the kind of the reality that we don't always know the things that people are doing was really impactful. And I think for me especially, um, I was three when Freddie Mercury died in 91. And um, it, it just was really cool to see that even when I was born, things were changing. That change took very, very far too long. <laughs> but it was happening. Um, when Clinton came into office, he asked Fauci to start working on a vaccine for HIV. So this would have been 1992. Um this helped push a lot of vaccine-related research around all infectious diseases further, which is really, really important. Um, and then second, <laughs> President Bush, baby Bush, you know, wanted to fight more to help address HIV, AIDS, and other infectious diseases in other countries. Did a lot in Africa, which, again, doesn't erase his racist assholery or any of that. Um, but it's really cool to, to see some of these behind the scenes things, right? They worked together to create this thing called PEPFAR, which is the president's emergency plan for AIDS relief. Um, to date over 1 million people have received antiretroviral medications through the program and, um, over 2 million children were protected from transmission during pregnancy and birth because of the program too, which is amazing. Um, Fauci also talked a lot just about the impact of how seeing all his patients die, you know, the, the impact that had on him and the work he was doing and pushing him to do more. Um, and talking about the instances when HIV and AIDS patients would interrupt interrupt <laughs> um, meetings that were being had to be like, excuse me, these medications don't fucking work. Like, we are dying and you're not doing anything. Um, and it really felt, not that this is reality, but it really felt like it was Fauci- and, and the AIDS patients and HIV patients against everybody else. And I know Fauci had, you know, a lot more help. It wasn't just him. But um, the idea that someone very powerful had the foresight and, and kept pushing on behalf of other people was really cool. Um, it, it was very, I hate the word hope, but it was very hope-inducing and and optimism-inducing, and, and all sorts of things, um, which was definitely needed in November. <laughs> so, uh, Freddie, um, in his childhood, like, he spent most of the childhood in India, but 
they had moved back to Zanzibar at at a point in his childhood, and then when he turned seventeen, um, his family fled because of the Zanzibar Revolution, because thousands of Arabs and Indians were being killed, um, and they needed to get out. So they moved to Middlesex, England, and um, Freddie studied art. And, you know, uh, enjoyed art more than anything else. He joined a series of bands. He, you know, had a series of dead-end jobs like just about everybody has. Um, he had moved in with a girlfriend. And and that's when they started Queen. Um, I'm... I'm reading off of wikipedia right now just because i realize i don't have as much information as i would like to share some of this background of freddie's story um you know he had an amazing vocal range he was an amazing songwriter he had such charisma on stage he could play amazingly um and it was it's just really cool to see even in the Wikipedia article, though, we need to understand that uh, there's some queer erasure. Some queer erasure. So they talk at length about his um, relationships with Mary Austin and with Barbara Valentine. Um you know, they they mention his last partner, Jim Hutton. Um, they mention close friendships. And it's just, um, I don't know. It's just weird. I don't, I don't, it bothers me. But I also recognize that there is a lot, um, a lot that the general public doesn't know about Freddie, and so maybe that's part of it. I don't know. <laughs> um, so in 1986, the British press reported that Freddie had been tested for HIV-AIDS, and of course he was hounded by it, um, by the press. And Jim Hutton, his partner um shared that freddie had been diagnosed with aids in april 1987 um which you know he had denied at the time understandably so because of all of the bullshit around hiv aids and as he began to get more and more visibly sicker it was very hard to watch um you know he'd get incredibly thin he got even paler like these are things that someone of Percy heritage and it's just hard to watch him get sicker and sicker um I think a lot of us probably have this vision of him in our heads where he's in this tank top and 
you know, tight pants, all of which are white with only like the dark belt breaking up the the color and he's tan and he's built and he's just gorgeous. And to look at the juxtaposition of that image to towards the end of his life is really hard. I think it's especially hard for those of us who've been that sick, um, who have gone through that process and somehow made it out. There's almost like a survivor's guilt, even though, you know, I'm sure most of us haven't ever had the chance to have met Freddie or any member of Queen or any people who were close to Freddie. But it's that recognition of like, oh, I see you. I see you like in your health issues. I see that. And I recognize you. And how did I make it out? Um, that can be really hard to deal with. And I'm actually having some pretty intense feels right now. But it's okay. Everything's fine. Um, his, his last stage appearance was um, in February 1990 at the Brit Awards in London. Um, they, Queen got an outstanding contribution to Music Award. And that was his, his last appearance on stage um his all of his friends kept denying his um hiv aids status and even into the last year of his life everyone close to him was trying to protect his health and his privacy there there are people who get really upset about the fact that he didn't speak out sooner because he could have been a champion for people and um, could have helped erase some of the stigma. And it's it's a noble thought. But I think we also have to step back and think about reality. At that time, people were still being murdered because they were queer. At that time, people were still being murdered and fired and all sorts of things because of their health. Fuck, the ADA wasn't even passed yet. Like, in 91 it was passed, but, like, in July. We're sitting right now in, like, April-ish. Um, and even then, the ADA didn't take effect until 92. So that wouldn't have even protected anything. <laughs> Not that it really does, frankly, but... That's a conversation for a different day. Um... You know, Freddie just had, he had so much to deal with. Um, and it wasn't just his privacy and his health issues that, that he was concerned about. Um, Brian May, who's also in Queen, um, said a couple years later that Freddie kept his condition private because he wanted to protect the people closest to him. And I think that's a really good point. Um, you know, a lot of people were still asked questions, but they weren't being hounded as much as I think they would have been. They weren't 
in harm's way um, as much as they could have been. I think, you know, people would have assumed things like that his partner Jim gave him HIV AIDS and maybe tried to take that out on him and some other things. You know, there's there's definitely a lot to think about during that time period. Um, and it's important to recognize that it's not safe <laughs> to be out about these things. Even now, quite frankly, it's not safe to be out about a lot of it. Um, we're taking many steps backward, but in reality... It hasn't been safe ever for anyone. Um, and that that just, you know, it, it tends to be safer for people who have a lot of privilege. But I don't think that when you're a queer man in the early 90s with AIDS, uh, you have a ton of privilege. I, I just... You don't <laughs> at all. Um, he he kind of wrapped up stuff with Queen in June of 91. And Mary Austin, who had been his kind of first living girlfriend, who he said about her in an interview at one point that, like, to me, our relationship was a marriage, like even though it wasn't official on paper, she was my wife, like, and I love her deeply. Um, she came and spent time with him and, um, you know, they, they really spent a lot of his final months together and she was there to help Jim help give Jim time off, help Freddie deal with stuff, which is really cool. <laughs> um, it's, it's one of those things where you don't always think about unconditional love like that. Um, especially because I think a lot of women would be like, oh, like he's with a dude now, it's gross. It turned him gay. <sighs> And, and when you love someone unconditionally, who they're with doesn't matter. You want to be there with them. Be there for them. Um, towards the very end, Freddie stopped taking his AIDS medication um, because he was tired. He was tired and he knew he was very close to death. He didn't want to deal with it anymore. So um, he stopped taking his AIDS medication and really only took painkillers. Um, on November 22nd, 91, he had a conversation with Queen's manager where they came up with a public statement that came out on the 23rd. Um, that is as follows. Following the enormous conjecture in the press over the last two weeks, I wish to confirm that I have been tested HIV positive and have AIDS. 
I felt it correct to keep this information private to date to protect the privacy of those around me. However, the time has come now for my friends and fans around the world to know the truth, and I hope that everyone will join with me, my doctors, and all those worldwide in the fight against this terrible disease. My privacy has always been very special to me, and I am famous for my lack of interviews. Please understand this policy will continue. The next day, the 24th of November, 91, in the evening, um, he passed away. So people really only learned officially of his status, basically right as he was dying. Um, You know, at this time, like, we didn't have the 24-hour news. (laughs) Uh, We didn't really have the internet, like... You probably tuned in to watch the news, and it was like, oh, yeah, Freddie Mercury released a statement yesterday about his age, and then now he's dead. Like, um, and, and, you know, I don't recall seeing these things. I was three. So, oh, oh, three and a half. I was three and a half. Um, but still, like, I do have a lot of memories from my early childhood, but not, not of this. Um, and I'm sure that my queer music family wouldn't have been very happy about it anyway. Uh, a few days later, Freddie was, um, they, they had Freddie's cremation and his funeral service. And, um, the 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 location of his remains um is not known that's kept private um and i'm really glad really really glad um his his funeral service was conducted by a zoroastrian priest which i think a lot of people don't know that freddie mercury was a Zoroastrian, um, and a, a little bit about Zoroastrianism. It's actually um, a monotheistic religion that predates both Islam and Christianity, and um, it's thought to be one of the first monotheistic religions. It combines a lot of different things from the time period that it started and um the the deity is ahura mazda who's known as the wise lord um there's you know there's there's things that are in a lot of monotheistic religions judgment after death heaven and hell um free will all sorts of things like that that frankly probably helped influence christianity Let's be real. Um, and it's it's very popular in Iran um, because that's about the area that it started. And there are a lot of Zoroastrian um, holy places in Iran, too, which is really cool. Um, Zoroastrianism is actually one of the first religions that I ever gave a presentation on in high school. <laughs> um so it's something that's always, like, near and dear to my heart. 
And that that's actually when I found out that Freddie Mercury was a Zoroastrian. Um, and I surprised the hell out of everybody by sharing that. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's really cool. It's a really cool religion. I definitely suggest learning more about it. Because obviously learning about religions is one of my jams. But um, I think it's... I think it's something cool to learn about. Anyway. um, Freddie wound up leaving most of his money to Mary Austin, um, his parents and his sister. And then he left a number of, like, varying, like, gifts, monetary gifts to people like his chef his personal assistant, his driver, and then to Jim, his partner at the time. Mary actually lives at his former home with her family. And um, it's, I don't know, it's just been really interesting to kind of see the aftermath and look back at the aftermath from now. Um, There's statues all over the place which is really cool. I really want to go see one. Um, and so one of the big things about Freddie is that his death, especially so close to when he kind of came out about his status, um, is an important event in the history of HIV and AIDS. And Queen later went on to found the Mercury Phoenix Trust and organized tribute concerts to raise awareness for HIV and AIDS. And it's that that organization has raised millions of pounds um to to help um other AIDS charities. So really it's it's almost like a, a funneling charity, if that makes sense. They funnel money to other charities. Um and he's like Freddie's constantly on the the top of lists among like important um, figures in history, whether that's in HIV/AIDS, in queer history, in rock and roll history, like he fits all of these cool different boxes. So it's, it's really neat to see. But, um, so let's move on to this fucking biopic because that's what I'm pissed about. So pissed. <laughs> um, I'm like seeing gifts of Gordon Ramsay yelling at people in my head. So, um, this biopic about Freddie Mercury was announced in 2010 and already at that point people were concerned because they said that they weren't going to address his his sexuality or HIV AIDS and that's still <laughs> apparently holding true um the the film obviously it's eight years down the line from when they decided they were gonna make it right so there's clearly some problems like they had Sasha Baron Cohen that was gonna play him and now they have Rami Malek and they just run into a bunch of issues um apparently part of why Cohen left the film actually was because they weren't gonna talk about 
Freddie's sexuality or HIV AIDS. So I'm really um, happy that he would be so much of an ally to be like, fuck that. Like, this is important. Um, The trailer just dropped for the film this week. And um, he's flirting with women, but there's no indication from the trailer about his queerness. And um, there isn't any obvious link to AIDS, HIV or AIDS, within the film, according to the trailer. Um, I don't know. It's... I'm just really frustrated. (laughs) Really, really frustrated. Um... It's, it's like while he was alive, everybody wanted him to be the straight guy. When he died, everybody was like, no, he's actually gay. And there's no, there's been no real effort to embrace his queerness. Whether that's bisexuality or anything else under the queer umbrella. Um, it's, I'm going to read this. Um, paragraph from a piece in them. Actually, two paragraphs. They're ending two paragraphs. And it's a piece that came out yesterday. Um, I think it's really important, although I, again, find it problematic to ascribe label bisexual to somebody posthumously. But <laughs> I'll, I'll put a link to this in the show notes. Um, It's by John Paul Brommer, who is a New York-based writer. The truth is, queer people inherit an identity that requires excavation. It's typical for it to begin with an inkling, a crush, an experience that tells us there's something different about us, and then we have to dig. We have to research to find the words to describe how we feel, to find the images that reflect who we are. We have to revisit our past, as I have in recalling my phone conversation with my middle school classmate. Um, he, he talks about earlier in the piece that someone was like, what was your favorite band? And someone else was like, queen, <laughs> just kidding, I'm not gay. Like, <laughs> um, which is so interesting because as I think about it, I've had several experiences like that and been like, why is it a problem to like this person or that person? Um, Piece by piece, we find ourselves in conversation with a collective history that has been hidden from us. The straight washing of our icons isn't just egregious because it presents a false version of a person to make them more palatable, palatable to a predominantly homophobic society. It's egregious because it robs queer people of opportunities for self-discovery, and that's why it's vital for any biography of Freddie Mercury to present the truth that he was queer. I think one other paragraph I want to read because I like it. Mercury never got the chance to come out, but his legacy lives on through his music and through the queer people he inspired with his art and his flamboyant persona. It makes sense that we would want him to be portrayed accurately on the big screen. 
So many people had found themselves in him, and this could be an opportunity for a new generation to find themselves too. And and to that note, um, in high school, I had a friend who was really into Queen, who, who recently came out as gay. Um, <laughs> and... Um, you know, every time he would see me, uh, he would sing or, or play the fat bottom girl song because I have a giant ass and it's, it's a good thing. I, I like my ass for the most part, except when it makes it hard to like find pants that fit and don't fall down. (laughs) But, um, and it was always something that I loved And so when I found out about Freddie's queerness and started listening to some of the other songs, it, I don't want to say it awoke something in me because I've known that I liked just about everybody from a really long time ago, but it solidified my queerness in a way that I can't say a lot of other things have done. Um, listening to Queen's music now, it's very, <laughs> it's very queer for me. Like, like I get into this thing and I get into this mindset of like, act up. I'm going to punch people who don't believe AIDS is a thing. Like it, it reignites ideas of the, you know, late eighties, early nineties of being politically engaged, of fighting, of, celebrating and being flamboyant and those are all things that I associate with being queer every single one of them which is why I use the label queer um and it's so it's like coming home and now I'm gonna get teary-eyed I can talk about Freddie dying and I'm fine with this I'm gonna get teary-eyed about But it's like coming home, right? Like, you find something that almost validates your identity and validates things you've been through and celebrates you. And it's like coming home after a long day of work or running errands or going to doctor's appointments and you're exhausted. And it's it's like the emotional equivalent of opening a bottle of wine or rolling a joint or whatever your like vice is is that feeling of like okay i'm home like the world is okay for right now and i can exist without fear and i can be myself and i can take off my goddamn bra like <laughs> And it's so powerful. Um, Those feelings are just so powerful. And when you find that thing, that, that show, that song, that movie, this book, whatever it is, that solidifies your identity and reminds you that it's okay for you to be you and celebrates your fat ass like it's something so beautiful 
that it's really hard to see people butchering the history related to that. Um, it's almost like when you read a book, like, I'm so pissed at J.K. Rowling, but I read all the Harry Potter books except I didn't finish seven because I didn't want it to end. <laughs> but, you know, um, if if you missed it, J.K. Rowling has liked and retweeted and shared a lot of transmisic feels, and I'm not here for it. Also, very whitewashy and very like, oh, yes, I just wanted Remus to be like a physical manifestation of what it's like to have AIDS. Or, oh, yeah, Dumbledore was gay. Like, saying all this stuff after the fact makes her some good person. Anyway, it's a topic for another time. But, you know, reading the books and seeing all these things in your head and imagining what things are going to look like. And then you go to the theater and you're like, wait, the fuck? Like, don't get me wrong. I like the movies. I do. But it's so different than what we imagine inherently. And it feels like that. It feels like the butchering of a book. Except this book is a person and their legacy helps give people hope and helps keep them alive and you're butchering that. You're butchering that. And I just can't. I can't. (laughs) I literally cannot. Um, I was telling a few people yesterday. um, They were like, oh, I'm not fucking seeing that movie. And I was like, you know, I might see it. I might go see it. But if I go see it, I'm going to dress up in my pink triangles and my queer stuff and gonna bring fucking glitter and every time they erase his queerness i'm gonna throw glitter at the screen or rainbows or fucking something like to remind people of his queerness because i can't i can't i can't i cannot (laughs) um i haven't even watched the trailer like like yet because i have some fears so you want to watch it with me? That may be kind of fun, huh? Um, let's do that. After I turn on the volume on my computer. Okay. Operatic section comes in. Oh, the operatic section, yeah. 
Mamma mia, mamma mia. Mamma mia, let me go. Forever, six bloody minutes. I'll give you your wife if you think six minutes is forever. Okay, I don't. Mm, I I have some feels right now. Uh. Yeah, there's several points in there where he's flirting with someone that's a femme. And another point where he's uh, spinning a femme around, which I would assume is probably Mary. Uh, and and it says throughout the trailer, like, the screen goes black and there's, like, white letters. And over a series of them, it's like, the only thing more extraordinary than their music is his story, but you're not telling his fucking story. Are you serious right now? Jesus fucking Christ. Okay. I... mm, (laughs) I wanted to save watching that for y'all, but Jesus Christ, why did I just do that to myself? I'm so pissed. (laughs) Oh, I'm laughing because I don't want to cry. Okay. Um, if you want to read something that actually is cool, <laughs> I haven't read it yet, but the reviews are amazing. Um, and and it's been celebrated on articles that talk about this straight washing. It's a book called Somebody to Love, The Life, Death, and Legacy of Freddie Mercury, by Matt Richards and Mark Langthorne came out at the end of 2016. And here's the synopsis. Also, I'm adding this to my Amazon cart right now. For the first time, the final years of one of the most one of the world's most captivating rock showmen are laid bare, including interviews from Freddie Mercury's closest friends in the last years of his life, along with personal photographs. Somebody to Love is an authoritative biography of the great man. Here are previously unknown and startling facts about the singer and his life, moving detail on his lifelong search for love and personal fulfillment, and of course his tragic contraction of a then-killer disease in the mid-1980s. Woven throughout Freddie's life is the shocking story of how the HIV virus came to hold the world in its grip, was cruelly labeled the gay plague, and the unwitting few who indirectly infected thousands of men, women, and children, Freddie Mercury himself being one of the most famous. The death of this vibrant and spectacularly talented rock star shook the world of medicine as well as the world of music. Somebody to love finally puts their record straight <laughs> and pays detailed tribute to the man himself. Now, I don't know, you know, how much of the queerness they talk about, but um, I am excited to read this. And I want to read this um, review because it's it's something that's impactful, one, and two, it's something from a healthcare provider 
And I know I'm probably not the only one who sometimes goes through periods where I hate every healthcare provider. <laughs> um, and obviously not every, but but the, the lack of compassion sometimes that people have in their day-to-day life, um, in their jobs, etc., is really hard to handle when it's... Um, when it's a healthcare provider and when their job is saving your life. Anyway, I want to read this review. I read this book straight through as I couldn't stop. It was so interesting. I've come to absolutely love Freddie Mercury and his musical genius. He seems to have been such a complex personality in some ways, but a superficial devil-may-care chance taker in other ways. I can sort of remember when he died, but I really wasn't into Queen or Freddie at the time. I vaguely recall hearing news of his death on the radio, thinking they just announced yesterday he had AIDS, wondered how he died so soon, and quickly dismissed it. At the time, I was a young nurse totally focused on my career. I'll remember until the day I die the very first AIDS patient I took care of. It was in the early 80s. We didn't even know for sure what AIDS was. We knew it was contagious, but not how it was spread. This was a very young man who had been living in San Francisco who returned to his parents' home in Missouri to die. We had to grow up, put on gloves. Oh, sorry. Wow. We had to gown up, put on gloves, and a mask to even enter his room. I I remember scrubbing my hands till they almost bled after taking care of him. It was very sad for this young man to have to die. So I read with much interest this book and the history of the disease and how it came to be, ultimately finding its way to Freddie Mercury. So sad. What a waste to lose Freddie Mercury and all the others so young. I try not to ask myself why. It's just the way it is. If you love Freddie Mercury and his music as I do, read this book. So I'll put a link to the Amazon um page for that book in the show notes. I haven't read it yet. I just found it today. So um, I guess stay tuned and I'll let you know how that goes. And hopefully it's not a shit storm. Mm, I really hope not. Um, If you want to learn more about the early days of AIDS, there's a book and a documentary um, by the same name, it's called How to Survive a Plague, and, um, you can, you can find details of that online, but it's, it's really cool. I'm gonna read, um, one of the reviews here that I think is, is cool. Um, I may have to read a couple of these, Jesus. (laughs) Um, Little credit had been given to the activists who worked tirelessly through the 80s and early 90s, in many cases laying down on the streets to try to bring attention and money to the disease. So the director, David France, set out with a small film crew and began collecting video footage from the era. He also met with more than a dozen prominent activists and veterans of the movement who appear in the film, which charts the journey of the disease from the first days, when a rare skin cancer called Kaposi's sarcoma began mysteriously appearing on the bodies of gay men all over New York until the advent of antiretrovirals 15 years later. 
so so here's another one. I sat down to watch How to Survive a Plague, a new documentary about the history of the AIDS epidemic, expecting to cry, and cry I did. I expected to be angry. Here, too, I wasn't disappointed. What I didn't expect was how much hope I would feel, how much comfort. While the movie vividly chronicles the wages of bigotry and neglect, it even more vividly chronicles how much society can budge when the people exhorting it to are united and determined and smart and right. The fight in us eclipses the sloth and surrender, and the good really does outweigh the bad. That's a takeaway of how to survive a plague, and that's a takeaway of the AIDS crisis as well. And now I'm full of tears again. Um, I haven't watched the documentary yet, but it's on my list of things to do when I feel like I want a whole day full of crying. <laughs> so there's a good podcast that went through and did a kind of a not a recap of it but um like a like a synopsis of it the podcast is called true crime obsessed and normally what they do is they um watch like crime oriented documentaries and they'll they'll share the documentary they'll share the reactions to it it's really fun um one of the hosts does the hamilcast the hamilton podcast and the other one um does a bunch of broadway ones and so it's just been really fun to listen to um they're both from new york one of them is uh the funniest gay man with the best laugh i've ever heard ever patrick hines and jillian pentavalli is the other host who also hosts the hamilcast um it's just it's an amazing podcast they've done all sorts of different documentaries but um their one about how to survive a plague was really i expected to cry a lot um the nice thing about them is they turn around and make you laugh really hard so (laughs) you're crying but laughing and it's it works out pretty well um the other podcast that has done a really good job of talking about the aids crisis and epidemic um is actually a podcast run by um two like public health epidemiologist type people and it's called this podcast will kill you (laughs) um it's something i absolutely love but they take each episode um a different infectious disease and they'll talk about the epidemiology of it kind of like the biological background and stuff and then they'll talk about different um Like, if there have been multiple breakouts, things like smallpox or something like that, they'll talk about those. Um, But then they'll also, like, read statements from people that were alive during those kind of breakouts or epidemics. Um, Or for the AIDS one, they actually had people um, read their own or share their own story. And... It was really cool. Um, again, it's something so nice to see 
people who are kind of in the healthcare field um, actually recognize the harm that these diseases do. And every single episode, you know, they get really sad. Like, it's, it's something that is really important for us to remember that people who work in healthcare are also humans and they also feel upset and lost and angry about all of these things. Um, maybe not necessarily to the same extent that we do, but, but not that they're automatons, right? Like they have emotions. Um, they also, <laughs> I enjoy podcasts around drinking cause it's fun. And, um, they also make a, oh God, I can't even remember what it's called right now. They're, they're in a break right now, but it's like, a something teeny, like it's, it's a cocktail that's based around the condition or, or the cure or something like that, um, for the, for the condition that they're talking about. Although I think they skipped that for the AIDS one because they were like, uh, this is kind of too important, which I appreciate. <laughs> um, yeah, so okay, I guess it wasn't a shorter episode today. That's fine. Um, make sure to visit the site and check out some of the new stuff that is going up on there. I'm working on some pieces right now. So, um, yeah, it's coming along. Uh, make sure to, to visit the Facebook page, facebook.com slash chronically sexy slash events. Um, I'll be putting up event notification page things on there. <laughs> My brain's run out of brain today. Um, but so I'll be putting those up later today for, um, the XXE plus summit and then the poly dallas thing um and that'll include all the stuff around like how to get tickets and stuff like that too um right now the link i'll put in the show notes is the french version of how to apply for um or how to like register for the xxc um summit you can google translate it like I have the Google Translate, like, add-on on my browser, so I can just click on it and hit translate this page. Otherwise, you can copy the URL and then put it in at translate.google.com, and it'll translate it for you. Um, other Otherwise, the English one will be out soon, and I'll put up a post about that at the site, and I'll also include that in the Facebook event. So... Um, yeah, come hang out with me, and let's bond over Freddie Mercury and AIDS, and queerness, and being angry at people. I think that's a pretty good bonding selection. A bonding smorgasbord, if you will. Um, you know, it's, I'm trying not to judge the film too much, because it hasn't come out yet. But I'm still pissed. Anyway. <laughs> um, the weekend's coming up. I hope you have a great weekend. 
I hope you have a great, you know, two weeks until we talk again. And take care of you. And I love you. Chronic Sex is produced every two weeks by me, Kirsten Schultz. I use music from Pottington Bear because they're awesome. You can find show notes and more over at chronicsex.org. If you're enjoying listening to the show, please subscribe, and that way you won't miss a single episode. If you're on iTunes, it'd be really chill if you take a minute to rate the show, too. Not only does it give me great feedback, but it also helps the podcast get seen by people who may not know it exists, and that's pretty cool. You can support us over at patreon.com slash chronic sex. As always, you can find links to everything at chroniccex.org from social media accounts to resources to sex toy reviews and more. Until next time, please take care of yourself and remember that you are a freaking badass.